Welcome to the final episode of Our Seven Neighbors Season 3, Birth of a Chicago Civil Rights Movement, Stories from the Archives, brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. Hard to believe we are finally here, bringing you the grand finale episode to what has been an incredibly rewarding season, featuring huge voices in civil rights. And it only gets better from here. My name is Kim Schultz, and I am honored to produce this podcast for the third year. For this season, each episode we pair an interview from the Jesse Jackson Oral Archive Project with a special guest to discuss and engage on parts from the interview. And wait until you hear who we have today. To share the details, let's bring in our host, Reverend Brian E. Smith. Hey, Brian. Excited for our final episode? Yes. I can't wait. For today's episode, we welcome Reverend Dr. Haynes, new leader of Rainbow Push, for a conversation with me about the legacy of Reverend Jackson and his vision for the future in the fight for greater justice and equity in our world. But before we get to that conversation, we have a real treat for you. We are featuring a short clip from an interview we conducted earlier this summer with Reverend Jesse Jackson. Reverend Jackson is pivoting as he transitions leadership of Rainbow Push and embarks upon a new role as teacher and sage for emerging leaders. Let's take a listen to a short clip from the man this is all about, Reverend Jesse L. Jackson, Sr., Please note that Reverend Jackson's voice is being enhanced for this episode. Segregation is a mean system. It is extensive slavery. Segregation is a mean system. It's the same Supreme Court that rendered of slavery. Black civil rights fight It's the same the Supreme Court that rendered black civil rights and, by extension, did slavery by separation separate but equal. So, there was 5,000 lynchings between 1880 and 1940. Not a single indictment. Fellow, our union partners knew about it. They did nothing to help us. We joined the Union Army against the objection of some of them. I mean, they was killing us about 500 people during that time. And then after, they had church service. And I was there for the watching, a lynching today. And they would go to church and go to lynching. Newspaper publishers, politicians, common people. The farmer would be there to see black lynch. And then they live with that as a sinning in their faith. They have a right to kill black people. And so in the killing, they kill so much hope. They work with the spirits. People adjusted to being segregated. You must always be maladjusted to that pressure. You must be maladjusted to it. So I grew up in a situation where all blacks would come packed in one neighborhood. We sit in a three-room house. My brother and I slept on the floor, mama in a rolling cot. My mom and dad slept in a bed, living room, bedroom, and a kitchen type thing. Next door was Dr. Ms. Walker, who were teachers and principal in our school. Then Dr. and Mrs. Edwards, likewise Dr. Smiley. We were all running together. Now with open housing, people had the means to go in the suburbs. Chicago is bereft of talent. It's in the suburbs where we can get a house and some green grass. But segregation was so limited, just the spirit. Everything was defined by race, not by reason. Royal blood. There are four types of blood, right? 
The one's royal blood don't know. The royal blood is a kind of race supremacy. We had segregated graveyards. I was born in a house. My mom couldn't get to the hospital. Had no health insurance. We were born in a scandal, really. Mama 16, dad 34. He was a big guy in town. He was a prominent boxer. He was a textile handler. They called him. He could feel caught until we should go around the world. He's an amazing guy. Mama was 16. She was singing the whole state. We went from the whole, right? So it was very well known what happened. Mom, father, choir. She had to come out front, apologize to church for me being born. Then he lost his job as deacon at the church. Basically, he changed churches. She changed churches. It worked out, but a lot of pain in that. The pain of segregation, limitations. Now A&T is going to play Furman this year. I wanted to go to Furman in University Ridge. We could only clean the clothes of kids who went to Furman. I couldn't attend Furman. The coach from Furman scouted me playing football and wanted to send me to Illinois. I went to Illinois as a freshman. I couldn't attend Clemson, couldn't attend Furman on race. It's a mental illness all by itself. Race, then you're superior to somebody because of your race. It was mental sickness. You believe you were superior because of your race. You you're not reasoning. You're, you're not making. You're making you're decisions you're making, off decisions that assumption, and they, they get just sick get and sick, sick and sick and sicker. It becomes so, war and lynching and all that. So we used to watch Chase the bus on Sunday. They change in the clothes on mannequins. Look who's going to watch the mannequins change clothes on the weekends. It's putting the sheets up to the windows. Willard was lynched. I was seven years old. They say he passed, chasing a white woman or something like that. Almost all lynchings were did around white women who were cherished, but they were not in power. Matter of fact, we got the right to vote in 1865. And white women got the right to vote in 1920. And so, now 10 to 12 years was over for first Reconstruction. And then the killing began. Whoever ruled slavery now ruled everything from schools, churches, how everything was behind the wall. I learned to be on that wall. At some point in time, I went to the Illinois playing football. And, uh, I, got, I got, didn't yeah, handle didn't properly. properly. We were oh, just, I, I ended up in a senior speech class. Never speech class I'd never been life. in a speech class before so in my life. I'm determined to do something. To do something. We won the Houston and, uh, Memorial uh, Speech Contest, Christmas. and I was coming so home that Christmas, doing a speech, and, and went in that. for an annotated Ooh. bibliography uh, at the Greensboro we Memorial Library. The Smith Colored Library had been moved to the Central Library. I see my friend. I call her. I ran for about two and a half blocks south. When I got there, 
two police are standing with her, and they're just laughing. I thought I misread it at first. It was just like guys hanging around talking on a coffee break. They've been called by her librarian. So I said, I said, she said, I don't have the books. I get them in seven days. I said, seven days? I have a 10-day vacation. I need the books now. She said, I can't do it. Police said, you heard what she said. I got his tone of voice. I went to the back of the library. I looked and saw. We confirmed the sets were there, and I cried. This time I'm going to use the library. I learned about Dr. King, and I've got the right, and it was a rising tide of dignity. I'm using it. I'm not inferior academically, athletically, Academically, I did well. The test they give you, Rhetoric 101, I usually take it, you write a thing. They integrate words, you lose points, about three incorrect words or something of the sort. Some verb disagree, you lose it, I want it. So the other guys look at me as headmate. I know they meant, they meant most of it. They were in Rhetoric 100. I want it. I was rhetoric 101, so I did well academically. I knew, in that sense, they have nothing on me. But my grandmother always taught me, good as, not better than. Better than is racist. Good as anybody else. It seems like caring about enough by your worth, by your, or by your values. Everybody is somebody. Everybody is somebody. It is always such an honor to be in conversation with Reverend Jackson. His full interview will be available soon as part of our Jackson Oral History Project. Follow us on social media or our CTS website for details on how to listen when the archives become available early next year. But for now... I am so excited to welcome Reverend Dr. Frederick Douglass Haynes III to Our Seven Neighbors. Reverend Dr. Frederick Douglass Haynes III is a prophetic pastor, passionate leader, social activist, eloquent orator, and educator engaged in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and fighting against racial injustice. Dr. Haynes is also committed to and has devoted his life to economic justice and empowerment in underserved communities, and touching and transforming the lives of the disenfranchised. Welcome, Dr. Haynes. So grateful that we have this opportunity to be able to share, and I think uh, we're all eagerly awaiting uh, the next phase of leadership with PUSH, and we're so excited that you are the one who has been called for such a time as this. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Oh, man, thank you so much, uh, Reverend Brian Smith, for this opportunity to engage in this conversation, both about someone I greatly admire and uh, who has influenced me tremendously, as well as to hopefully talk about uh, what we're going to be doing as we move forward. So as we consider the life and legacy of Reverend Jackson, there's so many things that we can talk about. 
one of the great challenges is trying to focus on one area of significance. So we decided to look at the origins in each of our interviews. And Reverend Jackson speaks about his early childhood and challenges that he faced just trying to get an education. And, uh, you know, we've heard this before where people had challenges going to the library, going to be able to read. And we have this historic challenge as African-Americans. So how does that resonate with you? It's powerful. And I think that it's applicable to utilize the poetry of Tupac Shakur to describe Reverend Jackson. He has a poem entitled The Rose That Grew From Concrete. And when you unpack uh, the poetry, you discover that here's a rose with so much potential, but there's a structure that basically is denying this rose the ability to do what the rose has been created to do. And yet somehow this rose breaks through a structure uh, that is not conducive to its thriving, but it breaks through anyhow. And when it breaks through, it blossoms. And so you see beauty that is broken through a structure that was designed to keep it back, hold it down, and preclude it from living out its possibility, its beautiful possibility. Reverend Jesse Jackson is that rose that has blossomed in spite of a structure of legalized oppression in the form of Jim and Jane Crow segregation. Uh, when you think about the fact that here is someone who became one of the greatest orators in the history of this country, a premier preacher, a prophet without question, Jesse Jackson exploded with all of his acuity intellectually. Uh, when you think about his ability to communicate with so many different people on so many levels, from the White House in Washington, D.C., to negotiating with Saddam Hussein in Iraq uh, when Americans were being held captive. Jesse Jackson has been on every large stage utilizing a brilliance, a rose, if you please, of brilliance that never should have been, if the concrete had its way, exposed to the rest of us. And so when I think about him going up in Greenville, uh, South Carolina, against the odds. When I think about the fact that here is someone who wanted to go into a library, a public library, but he could not go into a public library because of the color of his skin. He even talks about the fact that what he was given by way of educational resources paled in comparison and I use that language intentionally, to what others on the other side of town received. And yet he is the one that became Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson Sr. So it's very ironic that there were those on the other side of town who had more in terms of resources to fuel their education, their dreams, their possibilities. But we don't know their names, but we know the name of Jesse Jackson because Jesse Jackson is that rose that grew from concrete. That's right. And what a wonderful analogy and a way of describing this giant 
of an individual. And when I asked Reverend about what he wanted his legacy to be, he told me that he didn't work for legacy. He worked for mission. Yeah. And so I want to ask you, how would you describe your own career of service and ministry? Yeah, thank you for that. I would say that I am committed to ensuring that the voiceless, vulnerable, have a voice and are no longer vulnerable. I would also say that I am committed, and I'll use the Jesse Jackson analogy. He says, if you have a size 10 foot and it's being forced into a size eight shoe, the pain is the result of structure. That there's a structure, that shoe, that is creating pain that also gets in the way of that foot living out its possibility. I am committed, and it's my determination by way of mission and service, to ensuring that every foot finds itself in a structure where it can thrive and live out its purpose. And that means we have to challenge structures uh, that all too often elicit pain for those who are vulnerable, for those who have no voice, for those who in this country are persons of color or are persons who are othered for so many reasons. And so uh, I'm committing, I'm committed, I should say, to fighting and ensuring uh, that structures are in place economically, politically, socially, uh, educationally, etc. Structures are in place that fit humanity regardless of how they were created, that fit humanity so that humanity can live out its purpose. So as president and CEO of PUSH, can you talk about some ways that you intend to build upon the legacy of this venerable organization? Yeah, thank you for that question. My best answer is that Reverend Jackson has laid a foundation that provides for us a blueprint for what we need to do going forward. Uh, When you think of uh, Rainbow Push, of course, it has roots in Operation Breadbasket, where Operation Breadbasket had a mission for ensuring that every table had a basket of bread. And so the economic origins of Rainbow Push are vitally necessary today in a nation where the wealth gap continues to widen, not to mention income inequality. Uh, On top of that, uh, there is blatant and rampant impoverishment in this country. And Reverend Jackson oftentimes talked about the fact that you have persons in hospitals who cannot afford to stay in the hospital where they clean the bedpans. And so that kind of economic disparity, that wealth gap, is something that Rainbow Push will continue to fight to bridge that wealth gap and create new structures of possibility so that that wealth gap does not exist, so that we are fighting income inequality. Uh, I read something last week that was just abhorrent, number one, 
uh, talked about the fact that black women have to have three times as many degrees as a white man to begin to make the same amount of money as that white male. And that's income inequality that is structural. It's structural. And again, it creates pain because of a structure that is not designed for everyone to thrive and that denies people because of the fact that they are othered in this country the possibility of living out their potential. So fighting income inequality, fighting for uh, not a minimum wage, but a living wage. And we have to rethink what a living wage looks like. It's no longer $15 an hour in this country. $15 an hour leaves you still impoverished. And so to have a real understanding of what a living wage looks like, Martin Luther King Jr., the precursor, as it were, to Rainbow Push, who set the stage for Rainbow Push. When he was killed, he was fighting for a living wage uh, that everyone in this nation could experience regardless of their background. And so Rainbow Push was born fighting for that. And that's going to be a huge part of what we do going forward. Of course, we all know that Reverend Jackson really arrested the attention of this nation as he was going into public schools and uh, rallying kids and having them shout back at him, I am somebody, my mind is a pearl, I can do anything in the world if my mind can conceive it and my heart believes it with God's help, I'll achieve it. Reverend Jackson, he was hip hop before hip hop even started. So when I think about that, that this colossal figure, this singular charismatic figure went to schools that were underfunded, went to schools that in too many instances were in neglected communities and injected a sense of somebodiness into those students. Why? Because he was fighting for educational equity. And so to continue the programs of Push Excel and to nationalize it, to be honest with you, because uh, we know of the great work that is going on right there in Chicago with Push Excel. But we have a country now that is engaged in what Jacob Carruthers called historicide. Uh, we know about suicide, homicide, etc. Historicide is the murdering of the memory, the collective memory of a country for a political agenda. And so we see that in our schools, especially when you have a state like Florida that is now trying to remix what happened during enslavement and declare that Africana studies has no lasting value. All of that is reflective of an attack on education that will result in historicide. And I think it was Carter G. Woodson who said that there would have been no lynching if it did not first begin in our nation's schools. And so there is a need now to recapture what it means to educate our children. And so Rainbow Push will be on the front lines uh, in the fight for education. And then the final piece is that Reverend Jackson in 84 and 88, I mean, this is still mind blowing. He registered more voters, new voters to the polls to vote than anyone in the history of this country between it's been estimated between seven and nine million new voters were registered 
by Reverend Jackson between those two campaign years of 84 and 88. And at this time where voter suppression is not just rampant, but it is infectious in this country, there is a need for the, the energy and the sagacity of a Reverend Jackson to fuel a voter registration, education, and mobilization campaign. I was speaking at a civil rights summit at Cleveland State University a few weeks ago, and uh, one of the researchers shared, and this researcher ironically testified that he had cut his teeth politically uh, during the 84 and 88 campaign of Reverend Jackson. And he said this, he shared this uh, research that was absolutely mind-blowing. He said that since 2012, we are missing over 9 million black voters. They're still living, but they did not vote in 16, 18, 20, 22. They have not voted since 2012 when they voted for Barack Obama. So when you think about 9 million missing black voters, uh, Reverend Jackson registered between 7 and 9 million new voters, we have a responsibility uh, not only to reconnect with those 9 million voters who are missing, parenthetically, here's what is mind-blowing. those The majority of the 9 million missing black voters are suburban. They're not in the inner city. They're suburban. So you're talking about those who are supposedly better educated. They have more money. And yet they are disconnected from the political process. They are not engaged. And that is a challenge that we are picking up at Rainbow Push. And so when you talk about what we're looking forward to, economic justice, educational equity, and of course, engaging our community, engaging those who are disengaged in the political process through voter education, mobilization, and registration. Dr. Haynes, I'm smiling because I, I thought about a phrase that you are going to be familiar with that says, a voteless people are hopeless people. And, uh, you know, we're both members of Alpha Phi Alpha Incorporated. And you may recall a moment during our last convention in Dallas, during the public gathering, where there was a serious conversation about this issue. And I recall you uh, and brothers Roland Martin and Andrew Young invoking the name of Breadbasket. I've never heard it anywhere else, to be honest with you. Yeah. And um, if I'm not mistaken, Brother Martin was suggesting that we employ that same spirit and the tactics of Breadbasket in response to our current inequities. And I want to ask you, as we're talking about voting, as we're talking about breadbasket, how do you think we can reignite that spirit? Because obviously, if you're saying suburbanites are not voting, perhaps there's some complacency there. Maybe people just feel like they've arrived and so there's no need to be active. So how can we reignite and reinvigorate that spirit? Right. Thank you for that question. Uh, one of the things that I have learned from history. I, I feel almost like this is a Sankofa moment. We've got to look back to move forward. And one of the things that was done in the 50s and 60s was that that civil rights community, they had the nerve, or should I say, uh, the good sense and the nerve 
because it took both to set up freedom schools, to set up citizenship education centers uh, that basically taught, you know, civics and government. Uh oh, I think I'm on to something there because I came up at a time where civics and government was mandatory in my public education upbringing. It's no longer the case in too many school districts across this country. And so you have a number, I never will forget, a few years ago I'm teaching as a uh, associate professor at Paul Quinn College, and I'm teaching a class on Black Lives Matter and leadership. And during the course of the class, one of the things that happened, matter of fact, first day of class, young brother said to me proudly, I don't vote. I don't believe in the uh, voting process because of the electoral college, which means my vote doesn't count anyway. The more he talked, the more I knew that this brother had never been taught civics. And so I literally had to put civics in the educational curriculum of that course for that semester in order to help him understand what he did not understand. And I'm convinced that there are too many people, even if they move to the suburbs and they have nice homes and all of that, but they are not connecting the dots politically to where they live and how public policy and how politicians who craft policy literally affect and can infect their life even as they're living in a suburban, nice community. And so I think we have a responsibility now to transform our churches into citizenship education centers, uh, freedom schools, as it were. We're going to have to go back to what was done when Breadbasket was born, because Breadbasket, uh, one of the things that is interesting in the history is that Breadbasket took advantage of the Chicago church community, the black church community in Chicago rallied around Reverend Jackson and the church, the black church became the headquarters as well as some significant uh, white churches, especially Lutheran churches became uh, the headquarters of what Breadbasket was doing both economically and politically. And I'm suggesting it worked back then. It desperately needs to work right now uh, because unfortunately, again, there are those who are complacent and I maintain complacency and ignorance oftentimes are twins. And so we need to ensure that we inform them because an informed electorate is an electorate that is also inspired. So you've given some very good suggestions and, and I want you to know we are developing a civics education for faith leaders at CTS. I want to let you know that. Beautiful. But I also want to ask you, how can ministers, community organizers, faith leaders, business leaders, and people of goodwill do more to support you and the great work that you're about to embark upon? Well, I really appreciate that. Well, I'll quote Reverend Jackson again. He said, freedom ain't free. And so uh, first, we need everyone to take out a membership in a Rainbow Push, go to rainbowpush.org. Also, please give a sizable donation to our efforts so that we can nationalize uh, the vision that we are talking about because we definitely know that freedom has a high cost and we are doing all we can to ensure 
uh, that we spread this gospel. The next piece I would definitely ask that we get involved, become engaged, that you not only go to our website, uh, but join us during our Saturday morning forums. Uh, reach out to us with your ideas, with your sense of what we can do to bridge this wealth gap and to fight for educational equality and educational equity and engage uh, the electorate. Uh, let us know uh, what you would like to do. And that's one of the things I want to emphasize because I had, I've had so many people say, I can't wait to see what you're going to do. This ain't a me thing. It's a we thing. This is something that all of us must get on board and engage in this fight. There is right now a literal war on democracy at the hands of neo-fascism. And these neo-fascists, they really could care less about one person, one vote. They have no loyalty to democracy. And so they will literally, on January 6th, attempt to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And we have persons in Congress right now, persons who are in elected office right now, who are also election deniers. That means that they are on the side of those who waged war on the peaceful transfer of power. They're on the side of those who are against one person, one vote, because at the bottom, what we saw January 6th, was a was a war, not just on democracy, but a war on on my vote, because you basically say the vote didn't go the way you wanted it to. And so I'm going to stop and block what your vote said, because I will overrule what your vote said with sheer force. And I don't know if we we really recognize how dangerous January 6th was and is, especially uh, when you think about who one party continues to put forward as their speaker and their speaker is an election denier, that's dangerous. And it's something that, again, in order to fight for this democracy, and I, and I don't want us to miss this, Taylor Branch says that the people who have off, most often been victimized by the American practice of democracy, black people are the ones who have believed most in democracy. And I want to add, we're also the ones who through the civil rights movement and reconstruction, we've been the ones who have fought most for democracy to be a reality in this country. Reverend Jackson, on too many occasions, has often talked about toward a more perfect union. He has fought for that because there was something in Reverend Jackson's spirit, that rose that grew from concrete, that believed in the fight for what America says it's supposed to be. And so I'm asking, when you ask what, what, what can you do, please join us. Please meet with us. Please do all you can to spread the word about what we are doing and join us in this fight. Because in reality, if we don't do this, the, the forces of neo-fascism, they will have their way. And I'm afraid that's quite dangerous. And so you lift up a couple of dangers, historicide, the lack of um, voting initiative among folk that have the capability. 
and uh, just generally dealing with policymakers that want to fight against our uh, right to, to be able to help make decisions in this country. And when we talk about fighting, you, you, and you lifted up the, the state of Florida, so it made me think about the fact that our fraternity made a decision to divest from that particular state. Right. And I'm wondering if you see other opportunities for us to organize churches, schools, and other fraternities and sororities and, and, and groups in a similar fashion. What would that look like? Well, I, I think that the example you gave of what the distinguished and dynamic Brothers of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity decided in not going to Florida, this country and the civil rights movement proved it. Uh, the efforts of movements in New York under our brother Adam Clayton Powell Jr. have proven it. And that is that oftentimes in a capitalistic culture, money talks. And so as long as we are investing our hard-earned dollars in those states, institutions, companies, corporations, etc., that do not have our best interest at heart, uh, then we are financing our own oppression. And I think that's very important for us to recognize. And so what the Brothers of Alpha Phi Alpha did is a metaphor, I think, for where the movement for justice needs to be at this time in this nation. And that is, we all need to take a good look at those states like Texas, uh, Arizona even, Florida, any state with policies that engage in voter suppression, are wiping out diversity, equity, and inclusion as a part of you know their investment in equality in this country. Those states are unhealthy for us. And as far as I'm concerned, why would I go to a place that's toxic, inhale the air, and then wonder why I'm sick? And so I think it's very important for us to take a good look at any institution, anybody, any corporation that is engaged or supportive of that which is unhealthy for us. Rainbow Push has been doing that. One of the things that I was uh, pleased as I am going through this onboarding process last week, we went to uh, Marysville, Ohio, where Honda headquarters is. And they gave us a tour of their headquarters, uh, their their domestic headquarters, I should say. And one of the things we talked about was what we're looking for uh, with the with Honda and all car companies. And that is what are you doing by way of procurement opportunities? What are you doing by way of C-suite occupants of persons who look like those who are buying cars from Honda? What about your dealerships? Who owns your dealerships? Are there Black-owned dealerships that reflect the population of this nation? And Honda, you know, fortunately uh, came back with a good report, but they testified that report came because, what, almost, almost a decade ago, Reverend Jackson threatened a boycott of Honda. And Honda said, hold on, we don't want a boycott because, listen, money still talks. Imagine if black people 
decided. Imagine if brown people, imagine if poor whites, imagine if persons of goodwill, regardless of their color, decided to issue a report card of states, of companies, of corporations, of institutions, as it relates to what are you doing in terms of procurement? Because all have to, all are doing procurement in one form or another. What do you look like in terms of who's in positions of authority and power in your company, in your state? Is it equitable? Is opportunity equitable? If we did a report card on all of these institutions, publicize that report card and then said, this is our moral report card. We encourage you to do what the brothers of Alpha Phi Alpha did to Florida. And that is, we are not going to bring our hard earned dollars to a place that is dangerous for black bodies. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I want to end this interview as I do all of them, uh, I want to ask you a very specific question about you. You've accepted a, a challenging assignment, especially for such a time as this. And uh, of course, the no one will ever be able to replace the Reverend Jesse Jackson. And I know that's not your intent, but I do want to ask you, why do you do what you do? Well, thank you. Number one, there's a strong sense of calling. I feel that I was made for this. I'll never forget, and it especially hit me uh, when Reverend Jackson was talking to me about succeeding him. During my junior year in high school in San Francisco, my pastor, who was a protege of Martin Luther King Jr., a friend, uh, Reverend Jackson, Dr. Amos Brown, who succeeded my dad and granddad as pastor of Third Baptist in San Francisco. He called for a boycott of the San Francisco Unified School District because the school district was not really taking care of academically black students. And so we had a one day boycott of the San Francisco Unified School District because in California, as in many places, uh, school districts receive money based on attendance of students in classrooms. And so for us to not go to school meant that San Francisco school district would not get money for the district as it related to that day. And so we called a boycott that we organized uh, in the tradition of uh, the Montgomery bus protest. Instead of going to school that day, we went to our black churches and that's where black teachers taught us that day. And we had a model of what education should look like. And we had to go to the black church where that model took place. That evening, uh, we had a mass meeting like the civil rights movement. And when I walked in, Reverend Brown was up presiding. He saw me walk in and he said, there's one of our student leaders come on up here and address us. Now, I was not prepared, but I was prepared. I was taking at the time a course from Miss Homazel Davis, who dynamic lady, sister of Delta Sigma Theta, uh, Homazel Davis, a teacher that literally saved my life uh, after my dad died. Uh, she had us going through her class, Afro-American literature, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, we were doing some other pieces from the Harlem Renaissance. And 
writers of 19th century, black women, black men, Frederick Douglass, all of that. And so Malcolm X in his autobiography talks about that when his dad had been killed, probably by the Klan, that his family was economically, literally broken uh, by the system, by the structure. And Malcolm X testified that he would say to his mother, I want some food, but the refrigerator was emptying, uh, the cupboard was emptying, and she would say, we don't have anything. And he would keep asking. And finally, she would relent and give him what little they had left. And then she would say, why don't you be like your little brother who's nice and quiet? Malcolm would look at his brother who was nice and quiet, but going hungry. Malcolm was eating and he said he learned a profound lesson. If you remain quiet, you go hungry. If you make noise, you get what you want. Y'all, what, what, what I did that day, Brian, I literally took that piece that I had just read from the autobiography of Malcolm X off the dome. And I told that story to that mass audience. And I told that story. I said, today, what we did, we made noise. We refused to be quiet. We refuse. And, 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 and here's a little 16 year old kid making a speech like that. When I tell you that crowd erupted, I still remember it to this day. They went crazy. And afterwards, I'm like, you know what? I, I like this. And I wasn't just talking about the speech. I was talking about the good feeling I had from organizing on behalf of the vulnerable, of the voiceless, and feeling a sense of empowering a community that had been disempowered. And so I said, I like this. And then, you know, of course, I got called to ministry, pastor at church. And I honestly kind of was like, well, maybe, uh, I mean, I'm doing this work while pastoring church, but not really like I thought I was going to do it. And then Reverend Jackson called. And I flashed back to that moment when I'm a high school student and I felt like I was made to do this. Reverend Jackson calls. And I remember what I felt I was made to do all those years ago. And here I am doing what I feel I was called to do, created to do, and purposed to do. Amen. We're so grateful for you. And on behalf of our president, uh, Dr. Braxton and the board, trustees of CTS, I just want to let you know that you have a friend at the Chicago Theological Seminary. Please call upon us. We are ready, willing, and able to help you as we have been a blessing to Reverend Jesse Jackson. That means a lot. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And shout out to uh, your great president, Dr. Brad Braxton, scholar extraordinaire and a preaching phenom. Yes, yes. God bless you. And thank you so much, Brian, for your work, for your friendship, kinship. And of course, we have to shout out uh, the oldest, the coldest and the boldest Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. <laughs> And that's a wrap on season three. We are so grateful you joined us for these episodes, looking back and forward with Our Seven Neighbors, Birth of a Chicago Civil Rights Movement, Stories from the Archives. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your neighbors and family. Subscribe, comment, and help us grow our listening community. And be sure you listen to all six episodes this season if you haven't yet. 
If you are interested in learning more about the Jesse Jackson Oral Archive Project and hearing the full interviews, please check out CTS on social media or look for announcements at cteschicago.edu for postings, links, and events related to this project. We plan to release all the interviews early in 2024. And as always, find out more about the podcast and the archive project at oursevenneighbors.com. On behalf of Reverend Brian E. Smith, our host for season three, thank you for joining in this conversation. Our Seven Neighbors has been brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. Take care of yourself and each other.